0: Welcome back to The Reeducation. Today's show is about this week's red wave in Israel that has returned Benjamin Netanyahu and his Likud party to power in coalition with a troubling party known as Otsma Yehudit, or Jewish power. Is Israel becoming a Judeo-fascist country? I discussed this with my guest, contributing editor and diplomatic correspondent to the Jerusalem Post, Lahav Harkov.
1: In return for the far right's support, Netanyahu says he's prepared to give a cabinet post to this man, Jewish powers leader Itamar Ben-Gavir. Ben-Gavir was convicted in magistrate's court 15 years ago for inciting racism and supporting
0: a terrorist group while carrying anti-Arab signs at a protest. His spokesman insists he's changed.
1: He's become one of Israel's uh, most influential,
0: most successful trial attorneys, defense attorneys. He's become a civil rights attorney. Uh, and yeah, as a kid, he faced a, as a young man, he faced a charge. Uh, and, and, and you say as a kid, this is 2007. He was a, a grown man. man by then. Uh, still, still, still in his 20s. So what are you saying? He's changed. He's not the man he was when he was convicted for racism.
2: That's what he says. Ben gavir was 31
0: at the time of his conviction. Last month, he pulled a gun in a confrontation with
1: Palestinians. He says, in self-defense. Netanyahu's opponents say his deal will give the far right control of the government. I don't want to even think about it. Mirav Mikhaeli is a cabinet minister and a leader of the center-left Labour Party. It is going to be so harmful for Israel if we have such extreme right-wing people in cabinet, in government.
0: You just heard from the head of Israel's Labour Party, which is much smaller and less significant than it was in the founding of the state of Israel. And she is denouncing a political party, Otsma Yehudit, or Jewish power, sometimes known as Jewish might, that is inspired by the late Orthodox rabbi, Mer Kahana. I should say, Mer Kahana believed in ethnic cleansing. He did not advocate for the mass murder of Arabs, though he at times came pretty close to that. But as an Israeli politician, he campaigned for what he called transfer, meaning that all Arabs in greater Israel should be forcibly exiled from the Jewish state. Here is the man himself, explaining what he means.
3: Every single day there's another Jewish victim. As long as the Arabs are here, inside Israel, there will be Jews killed every single day. The only, the only answer is,
1: out. I want them out. I want them out alive, and if not alive, dead.
2: But I want them out. Better, a dead Arab than a dead Jew.
0: Now Hanna is an ugly but fascinating figure in Jewish and American history. In the 1970s, he was briefly a kind of media celebrity. He founded the Jewish Defense League in the late 1960s, at first as a kind of vigilante organization to teach young Jews how to defend themselves from anti-Semitic attacks, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, reflecting the tenor of the times in the late 1960s, the JDL, as it's known, soon embraced what the hard left would call the propaganda of the deed, acts of violence aimed at swaying public opinion think of the weather underground and the bombings in congress or the pentagon and this is why the iconography of the jewish defense league a clenched fist inside of a star of david evokes the black power movement of that era like the black panthers now beginning in 1969 the jdl launched a series of bombings against diplomatic missions of arab states and the soviet union the jdl And Kahana became the early advocates on behalf of Soviet refuseniks. These are the Jews who wished to emigrate to Israel, but were refused visas to leave the evil empire. In this sense, Mayor Kahana offered a right-wing version of what Tom Wolfe called brilliantly in his essay, radical Sheik": violence and civil disobedience against the Soviet Union and their clients in the Middle East. Here is William F. Buckley capturing this paradox for conservatives when it comes to Kahana and the JDL in 1972 on The Dick Cavett
3: Show. Well, I, I don't believe in, in civil disobedience. On the other hand, I, I sympathize with uh, Rabbi Kahane to, uh, to the extent of, um, of what I understand to be the emotional, emotional texture of his analysis namely, that a lot of people who spend no time at all uh, de- deploring the systematic inhumanity of the Soviet Union uh, find uh, uh, episodic violence by those who oppose the Soviet Union to be uh, uh, insufferable. I think, he's, I think as a matter of, of, of civil law, he is wrong. I think uh, if he is caught at it, he should be arrested and stuck in jail. But at the same time, I think that uh, as far as history is concerned, he may very well be making the salient point which is the people that we nowadays drinking champagne with, uh, are engaged in what Henry Campbell of the New York Times called once a few months ago the the worst assault on the human spirit in the history of mankind.
0: Anyway, you should look this up on YouTube because it's a real wild scene and you see a younger... Uh, America Hannah with a very boyish face before he had the beard, wearing a, an open-collar shirt, kind of in a proto-version of Saturday Night Fever. And, the, you know, the great William F. Buckley is, still, is, is there as well, you know, in his classic kind of understated waspy attire. It's pretty cool. But I play the clip because Buckley is tapping into something important. He recognizes that no one who supports the rule of law can carve out an exception, even for a cause he believes is just. For Kahana's vigilantism. So, Buckley favors the prosecution and indictment of JDL bombers. And by the way, Kahana would eventually be indicted, and he would even serve time in jail in 1975 for a little less than a year. But on the other hand, Buckley also acknowledges that, in his view, Kahana and the JDL were on the right side of history. By the way, I agree with him to that extent, at least when it came to the Soviet Union and international communism. Now, let me make this a difficult question. Let's imagine. That Merikahana comes along when there is no real rule of law or the law that rules is not just. Suppose, for example, Merikahana emerges in Berlin in the aftermath of Kristallnacht, or the night of broken glass when Nazi brown shirts waged a murderous pogrom against Jewish businesses, homes, and synagogues throughout Germany and Austria. You now in such a perilous moment for the Jewish people, Merakahana's lawlessness and violence would be virtues. Kahana would be a hero, much like Simon Bar Kokhba, the Jewish, or I should say, Judean militia general who led a valiant but losing campaign against the Roman Empire in the second century AD. Kahana, though, did not emerge in the late 1930s in Germany or in the second century Judea. He came into prominence in New York City in the late 1960s period when Jews were not persecuted in America by the government or the police at all. I mean, this was also a time when the Jewish state was proving its mettle against its Arab neighbors in the Six-Day War, of course, of 1967, and later the Yom Kippur War of 1973, though the last one was about much closer than the Six-Day War. Now, over time, Meriah would focus his energies towards Israel. He became a politician who advocated for the forced exile of millions of Palestinian Arabs. In this respect, I would say that his politics soured over time, much like in our episode about Kanye West and Ezra Pound. As he got older and focused more on Israel, Kahana really became kind of uglier. He was able to build though this movement in Israel because he appealed to the wounded pride of young Jewish men, much the same way he did with the JDL, but you know, he was getting at something even deeper in 1970s, 1980s Israel. And uh, let's give the devil his due. He was a gifted demagogue. And here is Mayor in a campaign commercial from 1988, where he warns of young Arab men marrying off Jewish women, alluding that they will be sold into prostitution.
2: The tragedy of Jewish girls, 4,000 Jewish women today married
3: to Muslims. And bear in mind that in order to marry a Muslim It means that she had to convert to Islam. 4,000 Jewish women today who converted to Islam and who are living today in our villages with their Arab husbands and their Jewish children who are Arabs. The prostitutes of Israel are overwhelmingly
2: Jewish. And the pimps are overwhelmingly Arabs. And this is the
0: Jewish state. For this we dreamed for 2,000 years. So here's the good news. Politically, Israelis, for the most part, rejected Meir Kahana's Judeo-fascism. In Kahana's lifetime, the high-water mark for his party, Koch, was in 1984 when he won a single seat in the Knesset. Menachem Begin, the Likud prime minister, would leave the floor in protest whenever Kahana spoke. The Israeli establishment at the time, both Likud and Labor, the two big parties, conspired against Kahana and passed legislation to ban his party and the man himself from elections in 1988 for inciting anti-Arab racism. Something, by the way, was sim- tried get in 1984 as well, but Kahana appealed to the Israeli Supreme Court and won that case. Now, Mer Kahana was murdered in 1990 in Manhattan by an Egyptian immigrant and fanatic Muslim named El Saeed Nosser. It was a gruesome irony. A Judeo-fascist murdered by an Islamofascist in an act that re-education two-time guest and former U.S. attorney Andrew McCarthy has called the first act of modern jihad on American soil. I should say, eventually Nocer was acquitted on the murder charges, though he was charged with gun possession. Here's a brief clip at the aftermath of his trial.
1: There wasn't one Jew on that jury. There were black and white Christians, and you could rest assured that there was a Muslim on that jury.
0: This is a travesty of justice tonight here in the city of New York. Uh, This is uh, a message to be sent out to the public, that you can get away with the assassination of
3: Jewish leaders.
1: 36-year-old El-Sayed Noser was charged with the November 1990
2: murder of militant Rabbi Meyer Kahana, who was gunned down while speaking at a Manhattan hotel. Nocerre was also charged with shooting an elderly man who tried to grab him inside the hotel and with shooting a postal officer who eventually shot him half a block away from the hotel. It was tense in the courtroom as the verdict was read. He was found not guilty of second-degree murder, not guilty of attempted murder in the first degree for the shooting of the postal officer, and not guilty of attempted murder in the second degree for the shooting of the elderly man. Nocerre was found guilty on the lesser charges, criminal possession of a weapon,
1: Two counts of second-degree assault and coercion for commandeering a cab while fleeing the scene of a crime. Kahana followers shouted, death to no as the guards shouted, get out of here.
0: After his death, Mayor Kahana's spirit lived on through the wicked deeds of the Jewish radicals that he inspired. There was Baruch Goldstein a fanatic doctor who entered a mosque in Hebron in 1994 and fired on the worshippers, killing 29 and wounding 125 more. He was eventually overcome by the survivors and beaten to death after this horrific act of terrorism. And Baruch Goldstein really is one of the fiends of Jewish history. There was also Egal Amir, a fanatic law student who in 1995 assassinated Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, he argued that he was applying Jewish law to a traitor of the Jewish people because Rabin had signed the Oslo Accords, which in theory would have created a Palestinian state in Gaza and the West Bank, land that Amir believed was promised to the Jewish people by God. Today, the spirit of Kahana animates Otzma Yehudit, or the Jewish power or Jewish might party, as we discussed earlier. The deputy of that party, Itamar Ben-Gavir, is a settler who was arrested for anti-Arab incitement when he was 31 years old and had a poster of Baruch Goldstein at one point in his office until he took it down because he, at least he said, he learned that some people believed that it was offensive, which is itself an offensive way of dealing with it. I'll take it down if it offends you. It should offend anyone with a soul and a, and a, and a conscience to have a poster of Baruch Goldstein. In this week's elections, it looks like Ben-Gavir and his party will be a prominent member of the new ruling coalition under Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party. Ben-Gavir's Otsma Yehudit is set to win 14 out of the Knesset's 120 seats, and that's up from six seats that it controlled in the last Knesset. This means that Itamar Ben-Gavir will almost certainly get a ministry, although it's likely he won't get a very important one. So here's the question. Is Israel today more fascist than it was before this week's election, or for that matter, in the 1980s, when Merkahana was rejected by almost all Israelis when he was making his case for ethnic cleansing of voters? And I ask this question because I think that there's a certain kind of critic or, you know, kind of opponent of Israel that doesn't get to enter this debate. Because for the people who claim that Israel is an apartheid state. They were saying this before, you know, Ben Gavir's party had any seats in the Knesset. It was independent of their participation. But for Zionists like us, I think we need to grapple with it. And here's my unsatisfactory answer to this question. It is unclear what all of this means as to whether or not Israel is sort of lurching to authoritarianism or fascism. So let's start with the fact that Itamar Ben-Gavir does not ever say directly what Merkahana said all the time, that he wants to exile all the Arabs from Israel. He doesn't say that. Instead, he speaks kind of loosely about the need to expel Arabs who are demonstrably disloyal to the Jewish state. And in part, because he hasn't really given that many specifics about this, I mean, say so he'll give examples, you know what I mean? He'll say, oh, someone who throws a Molotov cocktail in a police car or something like that. But he doesn't actually like sort of like spell all of it out. It gives both the fanatic racists who vote for him and very reasonable people, and there are many reasonable Israelis who did vote for him this time, to project what they would like to have Ben Gavir saying instead of spelling it out and sort of taking a stand in the moment. It's important. it's a classic demagogue trick. Say something vague and provocative and then act offended when others suggest that you've proposed something barbaric. Anyway, here is Ben Gavir at a victory celebration for religious Zionists this week. And he he mentions this at the end of this little part of his speech.
1: Secular and religious, Haredi and traditional. Svardi and Ashkenazi, people from the city and from the village, farmers, teachers, self-employed, soldiers, policemen, and all of them, all of them are uh, asking for a real change. They're asking to go safely in the streets. They ask uh, not to tie the hands of our soldiers and our policemen they're asking to make a complete separation between those who are faithful and loyal to the state of Israel, and we have no problem with them, and somebody who is striving under the existence of the state of Israel.
0: Now, the wonderful journalist Armin Rosen wrote a profile for Tablet Magazine, which I urge everyone to read on Ben-Gavir. You can find it online. And Armin explains in this piece that part of the political appeal to Itamar Ben-Gavir has been that he's willing to say there is something fundamentally broken in the Jewish National Project and that extreme measures are needed to repair it. And that message is, and I'm quoting here from the article, widely accepted among Israelis who have no specific fondness for Meir and who would never visit Ben-Gavir's home in the radical hotbed of Kiryat Arba, deep in the West Bank, much less live there. It is indicative of the current national moment, a bubble of tech-driven prosperity that masks heightening contractions and sharpening existential fears, that only a somewhat absurd and obviously sinister social outsider is able to speak to the discomfort that has become a defining feature of all Israeli life. End quote. The phrase that ben Veer returns to time and again in his public speeches is that Jews are treated like guests in their own country. Now, I have to say, to an outsider like me, this sounds crazy. Israel has managed to become prosperous and safe in the last 20 years, despite the war and chaos all around it. But there are things that are hard to detect from the diaspora, for example. There has been a rise in street crime recently. Israelis have endured one-off lone wolf-style attacks ginned up by social media. A few years ago, there was something known as the Stabbing Intifada, where kind of at random, Jewish people would be stabbed by, you know, radicalized Palestinians. And in, this, in recent years, uh, settler violence, but also violence against settlers, has risen a lot the standard narrative in the west is that you know this is a two-tiered justice system in the west bank jewish vigilantes who attack palestinians are almost never prosecuted whereas palestinian vigilantes are prosecuted and sort of sent to prison for long long stints in jail and you know that's largely true at the same time it's also true that in some moments and by the way it's not entirely true there there are You know, there's less harsh, I should say, punishment for Jewish vigilantism, but it's not like they're unpunished entirely. But it's also true that in some moments, such as the 2021 war with Hamas, many pogroms have broken out on the West Bank against Jews, and the Israeli military has failed to prevent these spasms of violence. And Ben Gvir really has seized on that anger and that fear, and he strikes a deep chord inside the Israeli psyche, basically arguing that the Jewish state is not protecting Jews in the land of Israel. And that's a really deep thing to say. It gets back to, you know, the fight between Jabotinsky and Ben-Gurion and and Menachem Begin and Ben-Gurion in the years leading up to 1948 and the War of Independence, where you had the revisionist Zionists led by Begin leading a resistance against the British occupation, and then you had the sort of official, you know, yeshuv formal community of Jews in Israel who did not want to openly attack the British sort of colonial forces at the time. And part of the argument from the Begin side of this is that this is our land, and no Jews should be flogged or hanged and executed by the British military in our land. It was sort of, we're going to demonstrate that this is our homeland. So Ben Gavir here is seizing, like he's, he's striking that chord, and I think it resonates. And as he told, you know, he, has, he does kind of clever ways of doing this, like a politician. So he told Armin Rosen in an interview where this line stuck out for me, that Arab terrorists in Israeli prisons are given lamb meat, marmalades, and chocolates. The implication being that the Israeli state is too soft on these implacable enemies of the Jewish people. Anyway, I should say that we should notice here that nowhere in Ben Gavir's analysis does he account for the provocations of fanatic settlers like himself. I mean, this is somebody who was arrested when he was 31 and was such kind of like a menace and seen as such a problem that he was actually disqualified from joining the Israel National Defense Forces in a country where, you know, all the, all Jews are effectively kind of conscripted into service except for very, very religious Haredim there's also no empathy in Ben-Gavir's analysis for the fate of stateless Palestinians who are not citizens of Israel. I think a great statesman, it's possible to have, you know, many kind of contradicting thoughts in your head. You can be primarily concerned with the safety and security of Jews in the land of Israel and committed to thwarting terrorism from groups like Hamas, but also have sympathy and understand that there are lots of hardships that are... You know, affecting Palestinians who probably you know would not become terrorists or something like that. And great Israeli leaders have understood these kinds of things and kept all these thoughts in their head at once. There seems to be there's no room for that in Ben Gavir's analysis. And I would also say that there's no appreciation for someone from for Ben Gavir in the way he thinks about these things. Of what his policies or his rhetoric, if he became a prominent member of the next Israeli government, would mean for Israel standing internationally. All of these are really important issues, and Ben Kavir has has shown so far that he doesn't really account for this. Anyway, I'm going to end the show making a final point in this regard. Too often in diaspora, Jews want to have the sort of luxury of the security of a safe haven in Israel without the anguish that comes with exercising state power. And it's easy to sit in judgment of the state of Israel when you don't have the burden of making life and death decisions for the Jewish people or and living with those life and death decisions, I should say, as well. So what I mean by that is it's very easy for, you know, Jews living in Bethesda, Maryland to say, I don't understand why, you know, they can't just end the occupation. When if you're living in Israel, you have been living with the consequences of the unilateral withdrawal from Gaza. And those consequences have been fairly regular barrages of rockets on your cities. Okay, but this point goes in the other direction as well. Itamar Ben-Gavir has been an outsider stirring up crowds for his adult life without ever having the burden of actually exercising real power or having influence on real power. So it's easy to speak of this simplistic and fantasy world where the leaders of the army and the state are too cowardly to defend Jews from a monolithic Arab enemy. Perhaps the experience of sharing power will moderate Ben-Gavir. It's happened before. In the 1930s, David Ben-Gurion called his rival in the Zionist movement Zev Jabotinsky, Hitler Jabotinsky. As I discussed in an earlier episode, Hannah Arendt and Albert Einstein warned that Menachem Begin was a fascist. He was not. Today, there are streets and monuments named... For Jabotinsky and Begin, because they proved in their choices and their lives that they were not the caricatured demons their adversaries claimed. This is particularly true of Menachem Begin. Zev Jabotinsky unfortunately died of exhaustion in 1940 before the state of Israel in America, but Begin really did prove that he was the opposite of an authoritarian. He you know, bravely stood down after the Altalena incident. We're going to do a Menachem Bacon show at some point in the future where we can get into more detail. And he was willing to sort of patiently work as an opposition political party for nearly 30 years, as Israel was ruled by the predecessor of the labor coalition and then the labor party itself for the first 29 years of its existence. Now, Mer unlike Menachem Begin, went to his grave proving that his adversaries were totally correct about him. Itamar Ben-Gavir still has a chance to prove to the rest of us that we were wrong about him. Either way, something that we should be watching closely. (laughs) Well, everybody, today the re-education is very fortunate to have Lahav Harkov, who is a wonderful journalist who I've known for many years and is a senior contributing editor at the Jerusalem Post, also the diplomatic correspondent for the Jerusalem Post, has covered Israeli politics for a very long time. And so we are very fortunate to have her on the program today. Lahav, thank you so much for doing this at last minute.
2: Thank you for having me on. Big fan of the podcast.
0: Well, thank you so much. So let's get right into it. So I want to ask, what is at this point the, the the top headline? Is that Netanyahu's back? That he's going to get in? Is that do we know that for sure yet? At this point,
2: like not only is he back, it looks like he's going to be prime minister maybe for years. Ninety percent <laughs> of the votes have been counted. Usually, in the final day of vote counting, in those last ten percent, you have like one sheet seat shift here or there. But just for the readers to know, the Israel's parliament, the Knesset, has a 120 seats. And right now Netanyahu is showing a... like Netanyahu and the parties that support him have 65 seats. So if one seat shifts to people who wouldn't be in the Netanyahu coalition, he still has a majority. So this is the most decisive win for Netanyahu actually since maybe... The, The 90s, really. I just in my, yeah, I just think it in my time reporting, and then the election shortly before I became a reporter in 2009, it was not as easy for Netanyahu. Let's say, as it likely will be for him to form a coalition. Okay,
0: who were the parties in that coalition? We might call it the BB block. Who are those parties? Likud, obviously.
2: Right. So Netanyahu's Likud party is most of the block. They look like they're going to have 32 seats. Then there's the two Haredi or ultra-Orthodox parties. One is called Shas, one is called Torah Judaism. I could talk to you for an hour just about their politics, but we won't get into that right now. But they, they function as, you know, like a really special interest kind of group representing the interests of the ultra-Orthodox, which are different i mean they have their own sort of education system they have their own interests and needs these are, preferred... these are the orthodox jews well
0: these are the ultra i know people are like the Haredim. i know and
2: and the thing is they don't like the term ultra orthodox so i try not to use it but to understand okay. that these are the orthodox people who who wear black and white and black hats yeah. as opposed to orthodox that we can, other can we orthodox call them Haredim? yeah i mean people call them hasidic in america but it's yeah. not accurate that's only like half of okay. them. okay
0: Fair enough. Okay, yeah. so you got the two religious parties, traditional, and just so I just to, just to sort of tease this out, these parties traditionally don't have strong opinions on a lot of issues that other parties care about, but they care about subsidies for their communities. They care about like things like not having the buses run on Shabbat, right? It's like they have right. a different set of issues that are their priorities. So like when you had the very contentious elections in the '90s and the '2000s about you know, the status of the peace process or things like that. It's not like the religious parties like had a, that was not their number one issue.
2: Right. But in the past generation, that's that has changed. I mean, first of all, just to add to those, another huge issue for them is that they're exempt from the mandatory draft. So all of these things have become, became bigger social issues in the past 20 years or so in Israel. People thought, you know, that it's ballooned to the point, when this policy of exempting them from the draft was instituted, like not long after the establishment of the state of Israel, it was a few hundred people and now it's tens of thousands of people. So first of all, the center to left of the country wanted to cancel that exemption. The The center to left of Israel wants more liberal policies about religion and state. Some of the right does as well, but it's less popular on the right. And so those are important issues. And also just in general, the these communities have become more right-wing and care more about security issues over the past 20 years so where they once could join really any coalition that would make them a good offer they're now mm-hmm. pretty solidly on the right especially the shoss party
0: okay okay that's good and who are, are there other parties in that block the bb block
2: yeah, so there's one more party in the BB block. They're called they're now called the Religious Zionist Party, and they're a block also of Orthodox parties, but not, not what you would consider Hasidic or Haredi that are running together. And the person you've probably heard about most there, if if you're following at all, is someone called Itamar Ben Gavir, who is
0: Yeah, um, I don't want to get into him.
2: Yeah, he's he's an extremist. There's really no other there's no other word to describe it, but all of these parties, what they have in common, first of all, is that they they represent different sectors of, of religious Zionism in Israel, which is similar to modern Orthodox Jewry in America, but with a much stronger political element. They tend to overall to be really opposed to two states and to be really pro settlement a lot, not all, but a lot of the settlement population is from this sector, although, you know, in normal cities in Israel, you'll find many of them. And so they all have that, like, I guess you could call it hawkishness in common. They're all pretty traditional religiously and are not really looking for reforms on religion and state, So they get along well with the other parties that I had just spoken about. But ben Beer himself is a disciple of an extremist rabbi called Rabbi Meir Kahana, who who yep. was American and then moved to Israel. And he was banned. He ran for the Knesset in the 1980s. He got in and then he was banned from running again on grounds of incitement to racism. So just to, to understand where he's coming from, his idea was basically to deport all Arabs from Israel. Ben has moderated, I guess, from that. And now he says that he only wants to deport the disloyal Arabs. What that loyalty test will be, he's never been very clear on, but he has made it. He has become really, really popular. This is going to be a second time in a row making it into the Knesset, but with twice as many seats as last time. And his popularity has increased, really riding the wave of last year's conflict with Gaza, during which for the first time, really, there was serious violence inside sovereign sort of green line Israel. So while there was You know, this campaign going on in Gaza where Hamas terrorists were shooting rockets into Israel and the IDF was striking the rocket Hmm. launchers. In towns that are mixed Jewish and Arab, there was a lot of violence by Arabs against Jews, including a synagogue being burned down in Lud, which is the city next to the the international airport in Israel. There's the city of Akko, or it's spelled Acre in English, in northern Israel. Historic Jewish buildings were burnt down, Jewish businesses. And there were Jews who fought back, of course. I'm not going to ignore that. But it was really traumatizing for a lot of people. Can I ask a question?
0: Did the state protect? Was there an IDF, or was there some? Was, did the state come in in these what, it, what? In some ways, pogroms.
2: So was the
0: national police involved? I mean, I mean, was the there? The
2: sense was the sense I think that people in those cities have is that it wasn't taken seriously enough until it was too late. Okay. And that allowed for you know far right politicians like Itamar Ben to come in and say that you know we're the ones who should run this country. We're in charge here and, and we have to show that we're in charge. He and literally a has, very yeah. deep
0: idea that gets to the core of Zionism, which is that it's our homeland and we should not feel like we are guests in our own country. That's what he says. I'm not saying that that's, I'm not, I'm, Eli Lake is not saying that. I'm just saying that that's, that's right. his view, right?
2: Right. And it's and that this gets back to unpopular. Sharon going on the
0: Temple Mount in 2000 that set off maybe the second fight. This gets back to before the state of Israel when Menachem Begin had the Etzel round up British soldiers in response to Jews being hung in the land that he would hang a British soldier. It was the idea that saying we as the Jews, this is our homeland and we are not going to be treated as if we're your subjects.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Playing and, on something
0: that goes pretty deep in Israel is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah.
2: Yes. There's that deep sense there's there's the sense of like what what is the state of Israel for, right? It's to protect the right. Jewish people. It's it's I mean it's for us to be able to assert, you know, our self-determination and and his, live in our historical homeland, but it's also to p- protect the Jewish people. And just the these these incidents that that you're talking
0: happening. about that happened, I'm sorry, these incidents that happened
2: a year in the and last a half ago, Gaza yeah. war.
0: A year and a half ago. They were, I mean, were was there any organization to it, or was it just like it was a war? People there and people were became furious. Was there incitement? I mean, can you can you speak to that at all?
2: Yeah. So, you know, Israelis and Palestinians, Israeli Arabs and Palestinians, they're, in many cases, related. In many cases, the Israeli Arabs strongly identify with the Palestinians, and they consume a lot of the same media, whether it's social media, whether it's television channels. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: so there was definitely incitements in Palestinian media and Palestinian social media. And that, you know, definitely played a part. And, And listen, the fact that this was happening these sort of pogroms were happening while Hamas was attacking Israel over over claims that Israel was, you know, taking over the Temple Mount, which Israel was not. Um, it, it says something about the, the extent to which, and again, it's a minority of Israeli Arabs, but it was enough to, you know, really be destructive. And that minority identifies so strongly with with a terrorist group, you know, with people that the vast majority of Israelis view as Israel's enemies.
0: And it undermines Mansour Abbas, who was the first Arab political leader to be to in the current government to be to play a part in a ruling coalition. Is that that right?
2: Yeah, I mean that it was sort of undermined from from almost day one. You know, people talk okay. about like, oh, Netanyahu could have formed a coalition after the last election. That would just complicated calculations but he really never could have because this block that i'm talking about the religious Zionist block they had always vetoed being in a coalition with Mansoor abbas the moderate arab party
0: okay got it i did so we've we've covered now so ben so ben gavir is an interesting figure the other thing we should say about him i guess or i want to ask you he's charismatic he's got some political talent right
2: yeah. You know, people like to compare Netanyahu and Trump. And I think it's a poor comparison a lot of the time, even though I think that Netanyahu has sort of adopted certain things from Trump. But I think that Ben Gvir actually has that like he, he looks like a, a schlub, you know, and he speaks okay. off the cuff and people so people see him as like a, a man of the people and As opposed to Trump, you know, he actually is a man of the people. He doesn't come from any wealth. He's someone who Mm -hmm. grew up like sort of in a poor neighborhood and as a teenager became religious and and moved to Hebron, which is like the really one of the tensest spots between Israelis and Palestinians and became kind of a, a rabble rouser there. And he's someone who Israelis have known for exactly that since he was a teenager. I mean, he was already good at getting media attention back then. So, yeah, he has this kind of wild charisma that appeals to some people and by the okay, way you know and, and, he's in the religious Zionist party but there are a lot of people who don't wear you know yarmulkes who like him people who live in the poorer neighborhoods of the big cities in israel people who right. live in these mixed arab jewish cities that were you know hit really hard last year
0: got it and then i just want to one thing one more thing on ben Gvir. Does he have some connection or does he revere Baruch Goldstein, the horrible Jewish terrorist in the 90s who killed, you know, went into the Palestinian mosque in the West Bank and, and, and committed mass murder? Is there some sort of praise for that guy? Because that guy, you know, I mean, he's, as a, we're both Jews here. We're, he's an embarrassment to our people. He's a Shonda. So yeah. is there some connection there?
2: So Baruch Goldstein lived in, in Hebron. And right. this was at the time that Ben Gvir was, became you know, very religious and was living in Hebron as well. And apparently he had a photo honoring Goldstein in hanging in his house. Right. And somebody brought that up in the media and people made, I mean, understandably a huge deal about it. I mean, this is a person who went into a mosque and just gunned down, you know, Muslims at prayer. Why do you Horrible. have a picture of him in your house? And so then he was like, if it bothers people so much, I'll take it down. This was in the 20 before. That's like a the sorry, last not election. sorry.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm sorry you much. feel offended. That's like that's a typical. Uh...
2: Yeah okay yeah, so that that was a big issue in the previous election in early twenty twenty one but it's it it says something about you know who he is, even if he's tried to very slightly moderate his statements.
0: well, that is trumpish, right? yeah, if you're offended, good. I'm offended like that's well, the he, attitude
2: you know last night after the election results came out, there was a reporter at headqu- at the head party headquarters, and the person said to the number two guy. You know, a lot of people on the left and Israeli Arabs are very concerned, and and his response was, they should be concerned. So there you go.
0: Okay, let me just put a bow on this. What is your read? I know you've been you've been the analyst, but is Ben Gavir like? Because I mean, we can predict it. We're going to see, you know, the op eds from the u- typical usual suspects in, in, America, in America and Europe and Israel, you know, the J street, Peter Beiner types that are going to say the success of Ben Gavir's party in this election is evidence that Israel's becoming like a fascist country. Can you just address that? I mean, cause it, I, I don't accept that, but I want to hear what you have to say.
2: The thing that like gives me hope or at least makes me not so worried or so panicked about the Ben-Vir phenomenon is the is Avigdor Lieberman. Avigdor Lieberman is someone who's been in Israeli politics for in electoral politics for about 24 years now. And from 1999 until 2018, basically, a lot of his campaign messages were identical to the things that Ben-Vir is saying now. He said that Israeli Arab citizens should have to make loyalty oaths or lose their citizenship. He wanted the death penalty for terrorists. He supported a quote unquote peace plan for the Palestinians that would involve not transferring all the Israeli Arabs out of Israel, but in a certain geographic area, they would be part of the state of Palestine and no longer Israeli citizens. And people didn't like him and people called him a fascist, you know, in the American media and the European media as well. But he got literally none of those things done. None of them. And so that, to me, shows that, that the system works, that you can have people who are more extreme in the system, but their, you know, their plans may not necessarily move forward. Now Lieberman has focused on other things because he represents Russian-speaking Israelis, and they, are not, they tend not to be religious, as opposed to Ben base, which is either orthodox or very traditional, and so and he has shifted like, focus. I mean, he, yeah,
0: just to make sure, just, and just to underline this, Ben Gvir has said he doesn't endorse the transfer policies of Kahana.
2: Well, but his his difference is if you're disloyal, you should be deported.
0: Okay, and right. he but said okay, that could that's... apply to
2: Jews or Arabs. So, like, what does that really mean? But it's the so same. He's double talking. Right, exactly. But it. People, A lot of people were really angry when I tweeted this, but like e- people don't want to accept it. But that's what Lieberman said for a really long time, and he just didn't accomplish it. And so my, my hope and my expectation is that you know the system working, the sort of checks and balances in a coalition system, and also in having a very powerful Supreme Court in Israel, will not let those things actually happen.
0: Okay. Now let's go to the other side. Who's in the anti-BB coalition? We okay. got the Prime Minister's Party, Lapid. And maybe just talk a little bit about Lapid and, like, who his father was, who was an important journalist and, like, you know, that kind of thing. And
2: Yeah, so Yair Lapid's father was Tommy Lapid, probably one of the most famous and acclaimed journalists in Israel's history. And he eventually became – and he was a – I would say, like a moderate right wing journalist. He actually supported the Israeli right once it came to power. It looked different than today's right, but that, that's what he supported at the time. It looked a lot more secular, then, let's put it that way. He eventually became a politician who was hawkish, but at the same time, very secularist and, and anti Orthodox politics. And he became Israel's justice minister. Lapid is considered a figure of the left, but the moderate left of Israel. And he's been prime minister for about six months now because of some sort of very complicated agreements with the previous prime minister about, you know, that if their coalition falls apart, then he That's fills Saftali in. That's Naftali
0: Bennett, who is a figure of the right.
2: Yes. Yes. It's all... It's very complicated. I think we should <laughs> be more forward-looking instead of being bogged down in explaining that. But his party is... You know, I think equivalent to maybe like social Democrat kind of parties in Europe, maybe some of the like, quote unquote, liberal parties in Europe, but it, or in the US, maybe like a moderate Democrat, that that would be where more or less where he stood. And he has now really dominated the center to left wing block or the not BB block. His party has 24 seats and the next party in the block has half that. What's so, the next party in the block? The next party in the block is they're called the National Unity Block and they are led by Defense That's Minister Benny Gantz. Benny Gantz. Right? Yeah. Benny Gantz is a former IDF chief of staff he's been defense minister now for the past year plus he was the the commander of the paratroopers in the IDF he's had a long sort of military national defense career and after he retired he was popular enough I mean he, he was chief of staff during the 2014 Gaza operation which was a big one it lasted more than a month and he was very popular after that and so eventually when he saw an opening, he came into politics, as many former IDF chiefs of staff do, although it's been such a rough time for him and the others that I, I don't know, maybe that trend will die down pretty soon. He reminds me of what the Labour Party used to be, or or what at least part of the Labor Party used to be in Israel. He's hawkish on the one hand, but pretty much to the left on on economic issues, you know, pro pro unions pro the farmers in israel the the idea of having what they call hebrew labor which means like having agriculture in israel even though we're a very small country without the best climate for it these are things that are important to him he is like left-wing on social issues but not super left-wing you know still has sort of respect for religion in theory could be in a coalition with the orthodox parties because he's not going to push too hard to reform things in that way and so his popularity, I mean not popular enough to be prime minister, clearly, but his popularity I think comes from that level of like moderacy, together with the sort of him being like iconic. A steady a, a steady
0: hand who understands yeah. the world.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, um, and Israelis like I mean, again, not enough in recent elections, but in theory, Israelis like generals in politics.
0: Sure. Okay. Now so we've got those two parties and then let's keep going. Who else is part of the anti BB coalition?
2: So after that, the numbers drop dramatically. Mm. And we have Israel Baitaino of Victor Lieberman, who I had talked about a little bit earlier. By the
0: way, who we, I just want to point something out really quick. Lieberman, Naftali Bennett, who are now part of the anti BB block.
2: Yeah, well all Naftali
0: Bennett. Oh, he's out. He's out of politics. Yeah. But okay. yes, proteges
2: of Netanyahu.
0: So all these proteges of Netanyahu ended up hating Netanyahu, maybe because of his wife, who's a lot to handle. But it's funny because he usually, you know, the way it's supposed to work is like, oh, you know, you 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 remain like that that relationship continues. But for some reason, Netanyahu alienates the people who would be most likely to be his successor, with one exception, Ron Dermer, who was who I got to know when he was the ambassador I knew him before, but ambassador to Washington. But Almost all the other BB proteges like turn on him.
2: Yeah, I think at this point Dermer might not want to actually run for politics, and that's why because BB okay. feels threatened by people who he thinks are actually going to go into politics, and it's it's different reasons for each one. I think Lieberman thought that BB was too soft, and then Bennett got on the wrong side of of. Bibi's wife, which had to do with sort of like expenses in the office and things like that. But she can really hold a grudge. Let's put it that way. And yeah, you know, and the situation in the Likud shows the same thing, which is that like Bibi does not train successors. So, you know, the day that Bibi leaves, which some thought it would be soon now with this victory doesn't look like it'll be so soon. It'll be a bloodbath in Likud because there's no clear successors. There's no clear people are being groomed as leaders. But if we're going back to the anti-BB bloc, so we have Lieberman next, and and I had mentioned sort of his views on Israeli Arabs and Palestinians before, but he's really been focused on social issues. He's finance minister right now, obviously about to leave that position, and also focused on sort of separation of religion and state, which, which is an issue on the left, which is a position on the left in Israel. And then we have the Labour Party, which is very close to what's called the electoral threshold, where if you get... Fewer than three point two five percent of the vote, you don't get into the Knesset. Labor Party, you know, the party that basically established the state and ran it for its first twenty nine years, and for yes, yeah, they That's are. That's a huge story. It th- is.
0: They're, they're hanging. They they may not get in. What happened to Labor?
2: They became like a fringe left wing party. You have, you know, Benny Gantz, who has sort of taken the mantle of, of maybe Yitzhak Rabin and being this, like, hawkish, but also kind of socialist, maybe socially liberal figure. Or like and, even an
0: Ehud Barak, right? I mean Or even he's... an
2: yeah, I mean, less ego, <laughs> but yeah. He's just a much more pleasant person to deal with. But in any case, now labor is led by someone named Mirav Michaili, a disciple of, like, Catherine McKinnon, radical feminist, who talks about radical feminist things almost all the time you know really yeah i mean she (laughs) this sounds this is silly like maybe this isn't radical feminism but i think that it's sort of like indicative like of her thinking and where her priorities lie one of the first things that she did when she became transportation minister a little over a year ago is that she decided to lower the air conditioning like lower the raise the temperature on almost all the trains in israel because women are cold so what? yeah, yeah, well, cuz you know, you know that like office argument people have that the women are like, "Why do I have to wear a sweater?" Why? Why are That's a real thing that happened. Really high? That's a real thing that happened. Yeah.
0: Okay, and she's the leader of the Labour Party.
2: She's the leader of the Labour Party. Yeah. So, and I didn't I could tell you We've come
0: argument. a long way from gold to my ear.
2: Exactly. Like none of that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah. So, uh, they're very focused on like niche like very lefty that you can recognize from the international left, not just Israel issues. And so, you know, on one hand, she solved the problem of labor being a party of old people. (laughs) Back when I was in a reporting Mm -hmm. position where I was going to party conventions, it was like all retirees at labor. And the sense was like labor was going to just die out. She solved that problem, but she hasn't, she solved it by replacing them with young sort of radical people who hold socially radical positions and and then the older people have gone elsewhere
0: okay but if she's aligning the party with the international left the international left doesn't think israel should be a legitimate state like how does she? well i'm not saying that she's, ever come up
2: it hasn't come up i think since she became leader of the party back when okay. we had a more stable position sort of more stable knesset and not constant elections It did come up in the Labour Party because Labour would go to like the international and all kinds of like world socialist things. And and in Mm -hmm. the last decade or so, it became more and more of a hostile environment. So like you did have like Labour Knesset members, for example, going to the UK when Jeremy Corbyn was Labour leader to encourage like the friends of I think they're called Labour Friends of Israel and and, you know, try to convince Labour to be a little bit less anti-Israel. But that's, you know, with so many elections in the past almost four years, they've not really had time to care about, you know, foreign labor parties.
0: Okay. Now, when I, I'm older than you, but when I started covering these issues like 22 years ago, from the American perspective, it was like a real debate within Israel over the two-state solution and the peace process. There were serious like, core national security issues. does is there, is there any divide on that today? It seems like most Israelis believe that Iran's the enemy, the Abraham Accords are good, the Palestinians aren't ready, we're not going to relinquish land voluntarily anymore. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of at least core kind of security issues where there isn't much debate in Israel. Is that right?
2: I think that it's not that there's consensus when it comes to how to handle the Palestinian issue, it's that nobody feels like anything is going to happen now. That's that there's a sense of no urgency and therefore it's not like the core debate. But in general, when people talk about left and right, that's still how the sort of spectrum in Israel is is identified. If you're on the right, you oppose land concessions. If you're on the left, you're for land concessions. It just depends how much you're going to concede.
0: Um, okay, but how many? I mean, are there? Is there a major constituency right now that supports the land concessions? Because it used to be, like I would say, fifty-fifty.
2: Most of the anti-BB block. So Lapid, he gave a speech in the UN list two months ago now almost, where he talked about that he thinks there should be a two-state solution, you know, just that the Palestinians have to, you know be less violent against israel and then be ready to make peace etc that the two things have to go together gantz is a little more wishy-washy on it in part because of who he has running in his party with him i think his actions speak louder than his words and that he is for a two-state solution or at least anti-settlement but he won't like come out and say it because it's not good for his campaign i guess and then you have labor And by the way, Lieberman is for a two-state solution, too, but his two-state solution, as I had mentioned, involved revoking the citizenship of, like, hundreds of thousands of Israeli Arabs.
0: Okay. Got it. Final question. And thank you so much for your time, Lahav. Sure. Is it possible that that Benjamin Netanyahu will be the prime minister and the justice ministry and that he will also be in the dock for corruption charges? I mean, that's, it's, right? Is that what's going on here? Netanyahu,
2: in all likelihood, will become prime minister in the next month or two. It's a process. (laughs) And he is on the docket on corruption charges. And So how is that going to work? First of all, his trial's going very slowly, so he's going to have... You know, it's fine. He'll have time to be prime minister. But that legally that's allowed in Israel and it's allowed on purpose. And you go back to Tommy Lapid, Leir Lapid's father, who he was justice minister when when this came up as a discussion in the Knesset. This is like 20 years ago. And basically the logic was that they didn't want to give Israel's attorney general the power to to basically fire the prime minister. And so right. they have a law where if you're a regular cabinet minister and you're under indictment, you have to resign for the cabinet, but not the prime minister. So Netanyahu, in all likelihood, we will see Prime Minister Netanyahu on the docket, which we saw already starting in 2020. So That's
0: Michigan, Okay. Yes. So we've already I, seen it, but
2: really quickly
0: for mm-hmm. Americans yeah. who don't follow it as closely as you, what is the corruption case against Netanyahu all about again?
2: Do you have another hour? <laughs> no, there's three cases. <laughs> there are three cases. Two of them involve his relations with major media figures in Israel and whether he tried to change the regulatory environment for them in Israel in exchange for more positive media coverage. In one of them, he absolutely did not. like. He refused the the offer or the request from the publisher of one of Israel's most popular newspapers, but he didn't report it. And so if that is considered a bribe, then he should have reported it. That's that's the most minor of all the cases against him. But in another one, there was like a a huge figure who owned one of the most popular news websites in Israel and also like a a major cable company in Israel. It would be like, you know, the owner of Comcast or something, that equivalent. And the regulatory environment really favored him. Basically, they weren't going to allow him to own all these different media properties. They were going to break it up, and they were doing it in a way that he was going to make like hundreds of millions of dollars off of it And the question. And at the same time, Netanyahu's spokesman and his wife were constantly calling this guy, asking them to change pictures and change headlines to be more favorable to Netanyahu. And so the question is, is that a bribe or not? Those are the two sort of big things. And then there's a third case. There's this big Hollywood producer, Arnold Milchan, who is Israeli. And Netanyahu got personally involved and asked then-Secretary of State John Kerry to renew his visa because they were going to revoke his visa because he, in his memoirs, wrote about basically being a Mossad agent. And at the same time, Milchan... Had m- regularly been supplying Netanyahu with cigars and champagne for his wife, and sometimes jewelry for his wife. And they claimed that they were friends, and this was just something that Milchan was doing for his friend. But at the same time, Netanyahu was doing something sort of politically to help him, and, and there were other things. It's not just the visa, but that's that's one of the big ones. So that's that's what the cases are about. The charges, you know, they vary from case to case, but it's bribery, fraud and a sort of very murky and vague charge on the, in, in Israel's legal code called breach of trust.
0: Well, two of those sound like nothing burgers, and one of them sounds somewhat serious. But the prospect of a sitting prime minister having to take time out of his schedule to appear basically, you know, before a court that could deprive him of his freedom, is just, you know, only in Israel. Only our people could devise a political system this much
2: <laughs> Yes, definitely. I, I You know, people always joke that, like, you know, the thing that disproves the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories of, of Jews controlling the world is Israel because we can barely control our own country. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did I miss anything here?
2: Well, we could just talk a little bit about Netanyahu himself making out We talked about the mechanism and the people helping him. Okay, yeah, combat, let's talk but... about
0: Netanyahu himself. Like, yeah. what does it mean? Like, first of all, obviously, I mean, listen, it feels to me as an outside observer that there's this one towering statesman over Israeli politics named Netanyahu. And then everybody else is kind of biting at his ankles. Is that correct?
2: I think there's something to that. I mean, you know, love him or hate him and those are basically the only choices. I don't know anyone in Israel or yeah. very few people in Israel who are in the middle on him. He he just is the biggest name. He is like the most sort of historic figure and the all of these elections that we've had these five elections in less than 4 years have boiled down to the question to Bibi or not to Bibi. You know, it's, right. it's just all it's beca- it's all about him. And so even if somebody, say, supports Yair Lapid and thinks that he can be as good a prime minister as Netanyahu, he's just like in the shadow of this person who was prime minister for 12 years before that. And, and, and if you cumulatively, like including his time as prime minister in the 90s, has been the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history and, and transformed the country in many ways, definitely transformed our economy. So there's something to it. You know, there's, there's a real reason why Americans barely know the name of any other Israeli.
0: And I mean, I, I, I don't I, I, I can neither love him nor hate him. Like, I mean, but I'm an outsider. So it's like I'm in America. So it's easy, easier for me. But I mean, there's no denying that he is a really skilled statesman. I mean, I think he's underrated, but he deserves a lot of credit for figuring out a way to navigate the kind of US abdication of its responsibilities in the Levant and particularly Syria and then having a relationship with Vladimir Putin who I think we would both agree is a, is a you know a dirtbag of the highest order but you know when you're Israel you have to make decisions and have relationships with people for him to have an have a have a relationship with Putin that allowed Israel to strike shipments of weaponry to Hezbollah in Syria when the Russians had the air presence in that country is amazing if you think about it. The, I mean, to, to pull that off, that delicate balancing act is, is pretty extraordinary.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that was a huge achievement. I mean, I think he played a very big role in making the Abraham Accords happen, which is really, you know, historic Israel making peace with four our countries in a matter of months. The Putin thing, you know, it's, it's now coming to, to bite him, you know, and he's going to have to really figure that out because now... Yeah,
0: but I, listen, I would say yeah. this. I'm a, there's no, you're not going to find anybody as anti-Putin as, as me. I can't stand him. But if you're Israel you can't not have some understanding with him after the russians basically become the air force for syria it's like you know i mean what are you going to do you there you know you you have a real security problem if you decided to just sort of you know take take the view that like you know this guy's a terrible rogue and we're america's ally and we're not gonna have anything to do with him, then israel would have an an untenable security crisis
2: right and I agree. Although at this point, Russia's pulled out most of what it had in Syria. And and Russia's working really closely with Iran. So I think it's no longer, sure. it was never easy. And I think it's going to be even harder. And that's going to be a big challenge. And I was going to have to face coming into office. I think that Bennett, who was prime minister for a year, took this sort of stance where he's going to be very quiet about the war of ukraine because of the security needs of israel on its border with syria lapid's been a little more vocal supporting ukraine and and netanyahu is it's it's a difficult thing to balance and that's that's going to be a big challenge for him when i i would just say this
0: i i have very different like america is a super super superpower so i have i have expectations for America to support Ukraine in ways that Israel can't. Israel is at the mercies right now. Israel is a powerful state and it's a proud state, but it's not a superpower. And it needs to survive in a neighborhood where the United States has made it very clear for the, over the last 10 years that it is trying to get itself out of. And that yeah. is gonna create a kind of security vacuum. And the Russians are one of those forces that have filled that vacuum. I'm much more concerned about Israel's kind of playing footsie at times with China And the possible kind of transfer linked to that, I mean, I think China is a real problem and that the Israelis should, you know, be much more vigilant on some of these things, especially when it comes to tech transfers and like letting like the deal with the port of Haifa, no good. But, you know, again, I'm as I'm totally 100% for the Ukrainians, but like, you got to deal with the world as it is. And I understand that the Russians are maybe pulling out of Syria, but they still have a lot of influence over that very weak country. And you got to deal with it as it is. And the fact of the matter is is that the fact that the Russians allowed the Israelis to kind of have a, a process by which it could strike the Hezbollah routes, well, that was dangerous to the Russian relationship with Iran, even though they've doubled down on that. You know?
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. All good. Points. And I just
0: thought if we had more skilled diplomats in Washington, we could have exploited those rifts because there's a long, long standing history of the Iranians not trusting, for good reason, the Russians. And, you know, but. Anyway, we we have what we have. What's done is done.
2: Yeah. Well, we'll definitely see more of that Netanyahu statesmanship if he forms a a government, which seems like the most likely outcome.
0: All right. Well, Lahav, you are a great credit and a treasure for the Jewish people. I thank thank you so much for coming on this show. I recommend reading Lahav's journalism. And her pieces, she is one she's now really, I mean, you're you're doing what I did. You you've gone, you're making that transition from reporting to more in-depth commentary. And I love sort of seeing that. I've known you for a long time. So read Lahav Harkov's work in the J Post. And I would like, I would imagine we're gonna have you back for more Israel news. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. This has been The Reeducation with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.